I am coming near the end of a series on the biblical worldview and mindset. We've kind of reached the point where we're looking at the things that are uh, the practical aspects of maintaining that and uh, instructing our children in that way. And uh, as it, as it uh, turns out, with today being the Sunday of our Thanksgiving service as we move towards this week of Thanksgiving and then into the Advent, Season, I thought that uh, I would uh, change one of the uh, orders that I had here and, and tie in the thankfulness one uh, to this point. So um, I will do that. Uh, but we need to view reality from the perspective given to us by God's Word. So we want to see reality as God sees it. That's that biblical worldview. And then we need to be intentional about our own commitment to walk humbly with our God, which is part of the mindset. This, this issue today that I want to talk about with Thanksgiving is similar to the faith, hope, and love um, notion that I talked about. Um, we also looked at the prayer of serenity that conveys the biblical worldview and mindset. So both the worldview and the mindset are included in this idea of Thanksgiving or thankfulness. So what is thankfulness? Uh, the... the <coughs> The idea of thankfulness is an attitude of being grateful, or I like to say an attitude of gratitude, um, uh, for all that God has provided and that He has promised. So both the things that He has given us and the things that He promises uh, for the future. Um, and this attitude acknowledges uh, God for these things, praises Him, and gives Him adoration in response to the provision and the promises of God. Uh, it's very uh, obvious when you see parents telling their children to thank somebody for something they've given them. Say thank you, and the kid says thank you. you know, at that point, the kid doesn't necessarily experience any gratitude. <laughs> you know, it's like telling the kid to say they're sorry. They learn to say the words, but... They don't understand the attitude. So I want to talk a little bit about what this thankfulness notion is. First, in, in Hebrew, uh, modern Hebrew uses the word todah for thank you. And the uh, root and ancient word, that word existed, but it was also tied to a word yada, which is the same kind of idea. Both of these words having the idea of throwing up your hands. It's interesting the Hebrew is such a behavioral uh, language. It's the idea of throwing up your hands in the idea of acknowledging that someone has done something for you. And even in prayer, the raising of the hands is the acknowledgement. Uh, you know, you, you point to someone or you reach out and you're acknowledging them in that sense. So this behavioral notion from a more behavioral language is really about acknowledging and demonstrating Praise and thanks to somebody who has done something for you, particularly uh, in this case, God. Now, the Greek word uh, is interesting because it is the word uh, Eucharisto, which is where we get the word Eucharist. And it includes in it this word charis, which is the word for grace. And so it is different in that the Greek word used for thanksgiving is really about the expression of joy uh, 
because something has been graciously received. That means something that wasn't expected, something that wasn't earned, something that wasn't uh, entitled has come to us. And so somebody does something, they favor us with something or they're gracious to us. There is a joy of, of receiving that and that's expressed in this word. And so looking at these notions from this Hebrew foundation and the Greek expression used by the apostles, we get this notion of acknowledging the gifts and promises of God, which we have received because of His favor and because of His grace. Uh, You are not thankful for that which you have coming. You, You just expect it. When you have an expectation that something is yours, you know, in the morning when my car starts, I'm not grateful. It's supposed to start. Now, I'm upset if it doesn't, right? Uh, that's what tends to happen to us. As we begin to receive things with some regularity, they begin to become expectations. And then they become entitlements. And then we are only noticing of them or acknowledging of them when they don't work. And that's a problem, particularly in a culture like ours. But in the world, particularly in the world of the Bible, when life was very difficult and there were constant problems and things didn't work all the time, there was a, a, not the expectancy that things will always go right. Uh, I think that there is a real difference in a person who has an attitude of everything should always go right to the person who says, I'm amazed that every once in a while things go right. And that brings that more of, of that sense of, of grace, that more of that sense of joy and a sense of gratitude in that framework. As I said before, uh, if you drop your expectations, you are likely to be more appreciative of the good things that happen uh, in life, so this is the the biblical mindset. We don't deserve God's provisions and promises; they are ours by His grace. He has chosen us in Himself, and that He would be gracious to us and give us peace. In fact, that's the blessing: the Lord be gracious unto you and give you peace. Or, as Paul says in the New Covenant writings, in New Testament writings, "Grace be unto you and peace from God the Father." And our Lord Jesus Christ. Do we deserve that? No. That is what God has chosen to give us. So uh, this grace and peace is not an entitlement. It is given to us because God is love. And therefore we should acknowledge it and be grateful. I, I looked at all kinds of passages when I was thinking about this. Uh, I looked at the Psalms. It's interesting in the Psalms. The Psalms begin with very few statements of thanksgiving. They talk about the blessing that happens to people. But as you go further in the Psalms, they become almost completely thanksgiving. It's an interesting thing. The blessings come and the thankfulness is expressed. Uh, That that process. And I thought about doing that. um, uh, But there's so many of them. That's a series on its own. Thankfulness in the Psalms. So I'll have to save that for another time. I was looking at the Book of Common Prayer and the statement that we made today that con- that's the standard uh, confession and prayer that's used traditionally in the, in the Protestant and free churches for thanksgiving of God. 
And um, in it, it talks about being thankful for things, but it also uh, makes a statement. I don't know where I put it now. There is a statement in it uh, where it says... uh, That by his dying through which he overcame death and for his raising the life again in which we are also raised to the life of your kingdom. And when I saw that, a passage uh, clicked in my mind. I hope that you have memorized enough scripture that things trigger scripture in your mind. Uh, That's really what we should do. If you want the biblical mindset and worldview... What you want is that when things happen or when things are said, they should trigger Scripture in context, in your mind, and then you begin to see and experience them uh, through that perspective. And as I, as I read that, uh, Colossians chapter 3 came into my mind, uh, actually the end of chapter 2 and then uh, chapter 3, and I thought, well, I'll use chapter 3 for this uh, message and for this Uh, notion of thankfulness because in the part that was read right before we did the the call to the word uh, being thankful is mentioned in the last three passages and uh, but there's a reason for that and that is tied to this statement that we made earlier and this idea of being risen with the Lord so I'd like you to turn to Colossians chapter 3 And uh, we'll take a look at that chapter uh, uh, today. In uh, chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Messiah, keep seeking the things above where Messiah is seated at the right hand of God. Now, for this congregation, that should be really a familiar passage. Because we both experience, and through our liturgy and through our services, during the uh, period between resurrection and Pentecost, the ascension of the Lord going up and sitting at the right hand of God the Father, seated in heavenly places. But we also reinforce that at Yom Kippur when we realize uh, during the High Holy Days that this is about when the Lord will return. He will come from that place and He will establish the kingdom. And so the Apostle Paul telling the Colossians who fully know these things, uh, who, that if you have been raised up with Him, in other words, you are part of what He has done, we are waiting for it to come in its fullness, then you are to keep seeking the things above where Messiah is seated at the right hand of God. So how do we seek the things that are above? How do we have a heavenly mindset Uh, worldview of eternal things in this temporal world. He says, set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. And we've talked about this before in the mindset where to have an eternal perspective, those things that are eternal, be a little careful of thinking up versus down. Okay, Because when the kingdom comes, it will come from heaven to the earth, and so the kingdom of heaven will be here. That's why we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In the meantime, we're part of that kingdom on earth, in diaspora, waiting for the time when he will gather Israel and us and establish that kingdom. And so he says, set your mind on the things that are coming from above and not on the things which are 
in the earth. This is classically Romans 12, 1 and 2. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may demonstrate, you may prove, what is the will of God, that which is good and perfect and acceptable. In other words, we are to be kingdom mindset and functioning as member citizens of heaven, even though we are not in that kingdom fully yet. When Messiah, who is our life, is revealed, that when he comes back, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Wow. I don't think we appreciate this enough. Why do we live like the kingdom now in a world that could care less about the kingdom? Because when he comes and he is manifest, they will confess, oh, that's what it was. I saw you guys. And we will share in the glory of his revelation by doing that. But the scripture talks about those who will be ashamed at his coming. Because they were not salt. They were not light. They were not an expression of the kingdom. They had their layaway fire insurance. But they were not living as citizens of the kingdom in that context. So we are not to live in and of this world any longer, but in anticipation of the kingdom from heaven, which is now in our homes and in our congregations, but will soon come into all the earth. I hope that you are planning. We're, now, we're, we're not fully moved in, but we are trying to get some expression so that from this Thanksgiving, we're going to move into Advent in the home. And we're going to then move into Hanukkah and hit those eight days of Hanukkah into the 12 days of Christmas and all of that into Epiphany so that we begin the pattern in this new uh, uh, residence uh, of, of the kingdom being manifest in that context. Um, so I hope you're going to do that. You don't, you don't have to go crazy. You just got to start. Just got to do a little something. A little something, a little something, a little more next year, a little more after that. The kids will do it, and, and it doesn't have to be expensive and fancy. It just has to be meaningful. And you know, this congregation knows better than most. You don't have to have angels swinging from wires and live sheep in a, in a play and, uh, you know, fancy costumes. You can do very simple reading and lighting of candles and singing of songs. And the truth of that scripture just permeates the room. Uh, so it can be done simply. Sometimes the most simple ritual. I mean, think about how simple being placed in water and coming out manifests the resurrection. How simple the cup and the host is in showing the body of the Lord that was broken for us and that we have become. How, how easy is it in the lighting of a candle at Advent with a simple prayer or even lighting a, a memorial candle for a loved one that just almost overwhelms us because we experience the truth. There is an epiphany. There is a manifestation of God that comes out of that. I hope your homes are going to be a manifestation of the incarnation and the preservation of God that is seen in this Hanukkah, Advent, Christmas uh, season. That wasn't part of my message, it's just free. <laughs> Colossians uh, chapter 3, now verse 5. Therefore, consider 
the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. How can those things be idolatry? Because you are serving not the God of the scriptures, but the God of your flesh. You are serving your passions and your desires. And that is the God of America. Boy, America is about self-determination. And self-actualization. And self-everything, including taking pictures of ourself. Right? Here's me in front of a bowl of pudding. Here's me in front of an entrance of a building. Here's me in front of a car. A good night nurse, you know? I mean, we just... We just are filled with ourselves, right? And, and the scripture is saying that we are to, our body is now to be dead to those things. Not our body is to be dead. Our body is to be alive. We'll get to that part. But it's to be dead to the things of the world. We are to be, and dead simply means separated. Just not my thing. Okay? I have no interest in donuts because of my allergies. My body is dead to donuts. It's not a problem for me because I have an aversion to them. But I don't have an aversion to chocolate. And when I have from time to time at Lent or other times said, I'm going to render my body dead to chocolate... My body rises up and says, You want to bet? <laughs> Chocolate is one of the most important food groups in the world. And chocolate goes on sale, everybody, and people are offering me chocolate, right? You know that. You guys have all done Lent and fasting and other things. The flesh will try to take you in a direction that the world wants to accommodate. And the scripture here is telling us. You have to reckon yourself separate from that. Uh, that is not where you live. Where you live is in kingdom things. So, he says, uh, And in them you also once walked, well, verse 6, For in it, it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. Now, the wrath of God is not coming on the sons of disobedience because of chocolate or donuts. I hope you got the idea. I was simply talking about how the appetite works. But ultimately, and you know this, if you indulge the passions of the flesh, they go from the immediate needs to needing higher levels of stimulation to then higher levels of stimulation. And then we go from eating to gluttony. We go from sexual desire to sexual compulsion. And pretty soon the passions are leading us and therefore it's idolatry. And so he says, God's wrath then comes upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you once walked when you were living in them. That was... That was your old lifestyle. Your lifestyle before you knew the Lord was to do whatever. You know, in the 60s we said, if it feels good, do it. You know, if it tastes good, eat it. That, that was just the way it was, you know. I have a desire. You know, I have an itch. 
Let's scratch it. So he says that you used to walk in them. But now, he says, put off anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech from your mouth. Take these things that, that come out of those desires. Nothing wrong with the basic appetites of our flesh. But when they are indulged and they grow, they grow not in the direction of righteousness, but in the direction of unrighteousness. And that's why they have to be reined in. That's why they have to be controlled. That's why the spiritual discipline of from time to time cutting something off from you, even something that might be okay, is a valuable exercise uh, and spiritual discipline. So the passions are... The basis of God's wrath on mankind because the heart becomes disobedient. Follow your heart, follow your thoughts, follow your desires does not lead to obedience. It leads ultimately to sin and to death. So we are to separate ourselves from such things, not because that will save us, but because we are saved and belong to the heavenly kingdom. Putting those things off. Uh, is an interesting statement. And so in verses 9 through 11, Paul gives us this notion. Do not lie to one another, since you have laid aside the old self with its evil practice, and you have put on the new self, which is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. This is a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free men, but Christ is all and in all. Now, this imagery is pretty simple and meaningful imagery. What Paul says is, I want you to take off these things that are of the world. Take those off and set them aside. And then you are to put on the new garments of righteousness, the righteousness of the saints, which are based on faith and obedience. And the problem is this. Every time you turn around, that old jacket is on. And you take it off, and then you put on the new one. And you're in the old one again, right? Awaiting the day when this body will be raised from the dead in fact... And those passions will be gone. And our salvation will be complete. So this is a daily thing. Now, we guys don't get this quite as much as women. Just about everything you do in your home has to be done again. Every, you know, I, I, that, there's a great line in uh, uh, Notting Hill that, it's a crazy movie with that that idiot guy named Spike, uh, who's wearing a, a diver's suit, and he's asked why he's wearing that, and he says, "Well, several reasons, really. Uh, no clean clothes." And the guy says, "There never will be if you don't wa- wash them." And he goes, "I know, vicious cycle." I mean, that's just kind of the male attitude about this. Okay, well, I have to be done tomorrow. Don't do it today, right? And but women are always saying, "We gotta, I gotta do this." You know, so part of this dying to self, this taking off the old man and putting on the new man is that it's a constant part of what we do. And it's part of our daily routine 
to put that off. I am, I am amazed how many times uh, I think I'll make it two days. I have yet to make it two days. Uh, every day I have to take, sometimes several times a day, I have to change clothes. If, if you know what I mean in this metaphoric sense. Because there they are again. There's those filthy rags of my own way of doing things and not uh, obedience to the Lord. So he says, uh, you need to do this in a way that you will put on the uh, clothes that will express the new designer. The old clothes are comfortable to the old self. And the new ones uh, that we take don't fit me. They don't match me. They conform me to the image of Christ. And therefore, they don't have gender and they don't have race and they don't have class in them. They make us one in the Messiah and members of one another as we begin to notice others who are wearing the same outfit that we are, the works of obedience to the Lord. Uh, The old clothes have not passed away, but they will pass away, and so they should not be overly expressed. The biblical worldview is focused on the kingdom to come, not the present. Now, why are we doing this? Well, we're doing this for a purpose. Not our purpose, but His purpose. Verse 12. So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, could spend an hour on those words. I don't know your detailed theologies. But the thought that God knows who I am among the billions of people who have lived and has decided by His grace that I will be His child for all eternity is overwhelming. Chosen of God. Holy set apart. And beloved. What else do you need? Right? It's, it's unbelievable. So he gives us that to say. Don't you know who you are? Now, don't get your head swelled by that. That's not entitlement. Okay? This is the orphan who nobody looks at. Who nobody even wants to see. And the wealthiest, most benevolent person in the world walks in and says, I want that one. Not because there's anything great in that orphan, but because the great one has come to adopt. That's what that's about. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. So as those who are chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion. This is interesting. I don't know if it's a mixed metaphor. 
Because Paul says, put on a heart of... He's talking about this taking off this stuff that shows, right? And then he talks about the inside. Put on a heart of compassion. Because out of the heart will flow these things. So what does he say? Here's what I want you to do. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. What is compassion? Compassion is caring about other people's circumstances. What is kindness? Kindness is doing good for other people's needs. What is humility? Humility is an absence of pride uh, pride in the presence of others. What is gentleness? It's a soft approach to dealing with others. What is patience? It's putting up with the struggles of others. Do you see what's going on here? We're taking off us. It's no longer about me. It's about others. There's only one way to get over yourself. And that's to get focused on others. So he says, care about other circumstances. Do good for others. Don't be arrogant against others. Deal softly with others. And put up with their struggles. Be patient with them. This should be our attitude and our behavior to all men, especially to believers. And so he goes on a little further in this passage. In verse 13 he says, Bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Bearing with one another uh, is putting up with each other even when we're not in agreement. I have no problem putting up with people who agree with me. I've always been excellent at that. Some of you probably are too. It's when they don't seem the wisdom of what I'm trying to do and they have to struggle through their own way. Now, I should understand that because I'm one of those idiots that has to struggle through things. I just can't take it at face value and do it. I have to work my way through it. Uh, I should be more patient with others who have to do that differently. Uh, But it's difficult. I see it clearly. Why don't you see it clearly? So bearing up with one another is the idea of trusting God for another person. See, if I think that your relationship to God depends on me, then I want you to do it the way I want you to do it. But the truth is, see, I'm really good at trusting God for me. I don't trust Him so much for you. I know he'll get me through my knuckleheadedness, but I'm not so sure he can handle your knuckleheadedness. Right? So I'm trying to help out, and that's not good. So this bearing up with one another means that we have to give each other a little slack. The strong bear the infirmities of the weak. And then forgiving one another. Do you know it's a terrible thing but even in a congregation as well-adjusted as this. We are going to end up wronging each other at some point. 
We are. Now, hopefully, it will not be intentional. But even unintentional wrongs hurt. And so we're going to have to learn to forgive one another. And the way you do that best, he has got here. He's, he's, he's just expressed it perfectly. Uh, you should forgive each other whoever has a complaint against anyone. Just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Boy, I'm glad the Lord didn't say, Okay, Bruce, I will forgive you if you never, ever, ever, ever make another mistake. Because I would go unforgiven. If I get up, dust myself off, and try to walk in the right direction, he forgives me. If I pick myself up, dust myself off, I can't walk, but I lean in the direction, he forgives me. He knows that I'm making an effort and His grace meets me at that point. Our grace should meet someone at the point of their struggle and not at our expectation of them. That means we have to know them better so that we know that they're actually struggling. Lest we think they are dragging their feet. Some people are not dragging their feet. They're doing the best they can. And we need to see that uh, through the eyes of the Lord. God forgives us the way we forgive others. So to receive grace, be gracious. To be condemned, condemn others. Lord, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us, is the prayer we've been given. Verse 14. Now we move into this thankfulness part. Beyond all these things. Now, he's given us this thing. You have now come into the kingdom. He is, in, he is at the right hand of the Father. He's coming back while you're waiting. Take off the old way, put on the new way, get in anticipation of the kingdom that's coming. And then he says these words. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. You guys know that uh, Gorilla Glue or whatever it is called. We used to call it Gorilla Snot. I don't, you know, because it was green or something. Uh, you do not want that stuff in your hands uh, when you put your hands together, because it it locks things together. Paul says that love is the Perfect bond of unity. Three major commandments. Love God. Love your neighbor. Love one another. 
Loving God is holiness, but it's holiness because it separates us from the world and bonds us to God. Love your neighbor bonds us to that neighbor. And loving one another is the unity of the body in the bond of love. I was uh, at a communion service once. I was leading the music. And the uh, deacons forgot to serve me. They served the instrumentalists. They served everybody. Uh, We were singing, We Are One in the Bond of Love. So they put everything back. They put it in there. The pastor took his part. He served the deacons. And he said, let's sing that chorus one more time. So I sang, All but one in the bond of love. And he looked around at me and saw, and then they brought <laughs> Loving one another is the bond of our unity. It's not doctrine. We can be in unity with people who have a slightly different doctrinal perspective. We must not divide the body of Christ over our seeing through a glass darkly. But you know when you're loving someone and you know when they're being loving to you based on the scriptures. There's very little disagreement in the body about that. How many angels can stand on the head of a pen? Now that we can get into a fight over. But whether or not we should care about those who have fallen and care about those who are... That's not controversial. So Paul says, be about love. Which is the the perfect bond of unity. Verse 3.16 Well, 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called into one body, and be thankful. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. You know those moments when you're aware of God in you being okay? He's always okay. I'm not always okay. But there are times when you just know that underneath are the everlasting arms. That you are in the hand of the Father and nothing can take you out of that. And that knowledge is so securing. And you're at peace. There's nothing between me and God. That wonderful peace. He says, let that rule in your heart. Because the prince of peace is the one who will rule in the kingdom. So get practicing that. This is our calling. We have been called to be part of the Messiah's body. And we have been brought into that body. And we should be thankful. Because we didn't have any right to be placed in his body. It's back to what he said. Chosen of God. Be grateful. 
Then in verse 16, he says, Let the word of Christ richly dwell in you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to the Lord. Nothing expresses joy quite like singing. Now, dancing comes close. But it's not the same as singing. There is something about a joyful song on your heart that quickens your pace, causes you to drive more appropriately. (laughs) It's amazing what it does to you in that context. And what he's saying is, just as Deuteronomy said, write my words everywhere. You need my truth surrounding you so that you will reinforce one another. Be grateful that you were included, surprised and humbled that you were included, amazed and joyful before God that you were included, and the word of the Messiah should permeate your life and environment so that you reinforce one another, and this should be done with thanksgiving in your heart. Thanks be to God for His unspeakable gift. Not only His Son, but the Word that tells us of His Son. And then he finishes this with a very interesting statement. So whatever you do in word or deed, what other categories of doing are there? We either talk, Or we do. So he says, whatever you say, whatever you do, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus. The idea is that you are, you bear his name as his messenger and ambassador in this world. And as you do that, be grateful that you've been called to be that. Because that means you're in the kingdom and give thanks to the Father. I remember the first night I spent the night at the trip home. Annie Mae had told Tyrone that uh, I could stay there. And she gave us the garage and said it could be our apartment. Third in Bristol and Santa Ana in the 60s. I had been living in the back of a car and that night I was in the house. Annie may ask me to do something. I can't remember now what it was but it was something that Tyrone didn't want to do. I was happy to do it. Because I had a place. That's what the kingdom is. We have a place in our Father's house, our many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, right? I'll prepare one of those for you. Will you do this for me? Gratefully, we will do it. Acknowledging all that He has given us, all that He has promised us. Rejoicing in being chosen to be His children and in His kingdom. We should not any day not have a heart of gratitude and love.
So as Paul says, and be thankful. Let's pray.